invite you to turn in God's Word tonight to the last chapter of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14, although our message tonight will begin at the end of chapter 11 and we'll cover parts of 12 and 13 as well for scripture reading, it'll be Hosea chapter 14. Remind you of the fact that in this short three-part series, what we've been doing is, is looking at as this book presents it to us, the depth of God's love for fallen sinners. That's what's on display for us in this book. In the 66 years of Hosea's ministry, spanning many different kings, many different circumstances, he was called upon to continue to come, to declare and to warn God's people, to proclaim judgment, but also to remind them of the depth of God's love. That's what's happening on Christmas morning. The depth of God's love is on display so that he might be magnified, so that he might be glorified. Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon, of Ephraim. What have I to do with I? O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Dear Lord, we once again thank you for this opportunity and the privilege we have this Sunday evening to come worship you. And dear Lord, as we read the last few chapters of Hosea, we just ask that you guide Pastor Bob and with clarity of speech and mind, dear Lord, and please be with us as a congregation that we could open our hearts and our minds and accept this word and, and live our daily life, dear Lord, for you. This we ask in your name. Amen. And amen. One can well imagine that over the course of Hosea's long ministry, 
there were multiple times, particularly as you read the life of the kings during which he was a prophet, multiple times he'd have to return to the same message. That it wasn't like there, the, he could progress, that, that he could somehow change the message because the culture, the nature of man remained the same. And so even as we come to the last part of the book, we find these three points being made. There is a repeated warning. There is, secondly, a repeated judgment. And thirdly, there is a repeated reminder. A warning, a judgment, and a reminder. If we go back to chapter 11, the 12th verse, okay, after we uh, looked at and, and looked at the Lord's love for Israel, which, is, which was in chapter 11, last Lord's Day evening. Note how that chapter ends, though. I, I beg to have to remind you, but it, it's always important to do so. We're the ones, okay, they, they don't come by inspiration of the Spirit who put in chapters and verses. So whoever made the decision to, to end chapter 11 after verse 12 rather than after verse 11, um, for whatever reason they did, it, it really doesn't seem to fall into the nature of the passage. It would have been more practical to have broken the chapter and to start chapter 12 at where verse 12 of chapter 11 is. Because once again, even after these great words of love, that, that great sounding forth of the lion that calls his people to himself, the roar of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the message of the gospel that goes forth, to all nations. We return in verse 12 to Ephraim. And what is it doing? It's sinning. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. God is sounding forth a warning. A warning again to Ephraim. Those ten northern tribes. Or as sometimes we refer to it, Samaria or Israel. It all references the same location. God again has to come through Hosea the prophet after that great message and come back. Perhaps we're during a time of another king. Maybe we're in another one of those declines spiritually. And Hosea has to come again and warn them again of God's coming judgment. But there is something different now. Because when you start then in verse 2, it's not just Ephraim anymore. It's not just the northern tribe. Now Judah gets caught up into this as well. In verse 12 of chapter 11, God is saying great things about Judah. He is saying Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Okay, but now we're 10 years later. What happens? Well, not only is Israel still 
in its sin, Judah is being caught up into that sin as well. And now for basically chapter 12 from 2 to 13, God continues to, to come and to talk about the sins of Judah. The Lord has an indictment, verse 2 of chapter 12, against Judah. This has not been mentioned before. Now it comes up. Why? Because we're later in history. Now we probably have one of those kings of Judah who is not so good. A guy by the name of Ahaz comes to mind, who leads the people greatly astray. He will repay him according to his deeds. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. And then he goes on to describe what Jacob was like, the trickster, the supplanter, the one who lies and deceives. That's what Judah has become. They've become just like their ancestor Jacob. God comes with his warning, not just to Israel now, but now to both houses, now to both kingdoms, warning them of the judgment that is to come. So turn with me from that to chapter 13. Now, instead of warning, God speaks of the particular judgment that is to come. Why? Because they continue to sin. They're continuing in this, even though they've been warned. Parents, you, you get the understanding here, don't you? you? You've warned your child. You've told them. If you keep doing this, if you do this again, this is the consequence. This is what's going to happen. Now God is coming in judgment. Why? Because they stopped sinning? Because they repented at his warning? Because they turned? No. Look at chapter 13, 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. But he has incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of the craftsmen. See, they have united with Baal. Continue on, chapter 2. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. This is where they've gone. Rather than heeding God's warning. Rather than listening to the prophet, they have continued in their sin. In fact, it has gotten progressively worse. We are now at the point of human sacrifice. We are now at the point, rather than worshiping and magnifying the Lord their God, they're kissing the calf statue of Baal. See, this is the spiritual adultery of which Israel is guilty. This is the spiritual adultery that God was exemplifying through Gomer, Hosea's wife, who goes after all of those other lovers, eventually leaving Hosea for those many lovers. That we looked at last Lord's Day evening that Hosea was commanded to go back now. Go find her. Go find her. Buy her. Purchase her. Buy her back. Take her home. Covenant with her again what we were doing at the table. 
being reminded that that's what God did for us. He sought us out in his love. He paid the price of his son's own blood for us so that we might be his people. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See, not only did God's people of the Old Testament have this issue, so did God's people of the New Testament, the Corinthian church. Paul, in the passage I'm going to read to you, is giving them instructions as to how they're going to live. Why? Because they're living in the, in the middle of one of the most pagan cities in existence at the time of the New Testament, Corinth. Pagan in its worship, pagan in its lifestyle. The, the, the paganism of Athens that, that we read about in Acts chapter 16 is a paganism of intellectual philosophy and thought. The paganism of Corinth is brutish. The paganism of Corinth has no morality to it whatsoever. It is a please all of your desires. Just do what you want in honor of all of these gods that are being worshipped. And the church is trying to live in the midst of it. And some of the church is involved in some of those practices. That's why the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is, is, set, is filled with such a mess because they're living in a mess. Not, perhaps not much different than our society as well. So what is the command of God's people? What is the command to God's people? It's the same command that was given to Samaria. It's the same command that was given to Judah. It's the same command that is given to Corinth. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So Paul is instructing the Corinthians, even as he is instructing us, we have to be careful of our relationships. Even as Israel gave its way to Baal, even as Judah was succumbing to that, even as the church of Corinth was giving in to this impulse, we have to be warned as well. Do not commit spiritual adultery. Don't sell your soul for a mate. Don't sell your soul for a business. Don't sell your soul for a dollar. Don't sell your soul for a dream. Don't sell your soul for a family. Don't sell your soul. It's spiritual adultery. You think, we have all this evidence, right? We have all of this word of God. You think we'd heed it. 
See, we're probably sitting here looking at this book of Hosea going, why don't these people get it? Why don't I get it? Why don't you get it? Because we so easily succumb to that old man of sin rather than putting sin to death, rather than saying, no, God tells me I can't do that. God tells me that's wrong. To not even entertain the thought, to not even entertain the possibility. We cannot sell our souls. Spiritual adultery. We'll find ourselves under the same judgment as we find Samaria and Judah here. And what does that judgment look like? Well, in chapter 13, God gives illustrations. God gives pictures of what his judgment is. In the previous chapters, he described what he was going to do in, in very literal terms. Here, it's picturesque. Not picturesque in the sense of some beautiful thing. It's he gives them a picture for them to contemplate and to think about what is that judgment of God upon us for our spiritual adultery going to look like? I'll point out four of them. Chapter 13, verse 3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or the dew that goes early away. That's the judgment of God. What, what, what do you mean by that? Israel is going to be like the morning mist. It's just going to quickly pass away. It's going to quickly be gone. It's not going to last. It's not going to be beneficial. It's not going to be helpful. This is the mist that is there, but it, it's not there long enough to do any benefit to the crop. It's not there long enough to do any benefit to the grass. It just goes away quickly. That's what Israel is going to be. They're going to be like this mist, this dew that fades so fast and quick, it is of no benefit. And truly, when you read the downfall of Israel, it happens rather quickly when the Assyrians come and just take them away captive. And they're gone. They're gone. They never return. They're gone. That's it. That dew is gone, and it will not come back. Israel is gone. Those ten tribes are gone. They do not come back. That's God's picture of his coming judgment. Chapter 13, the picture in 7 and 8. So I am to them, this is God speaking, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. There is a picture for you. God says, what am I like? I'm like a lion, lurking, pouncing. I'm like a leopard, creeping through and coming upon you suddenly. I'm like a bear that's robbed of its cubs, angry. And I will destroy you. Want a picture of what's coming? Yeah, that's the Assyrian army you're hearing in the background. That's God coming in judgment. What a picture. Huh? 
Remember that National Geographic documentary of the lion? Happened so fast. Happened so quick. That antelope don't even know what came. That's what it's going to be like for Israel. All of a sudden, boom! There it is. Gone. It's going to be like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. Here's another picture God gives to us in verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, and his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his sanctuary of every precious thing. An east wind, and we say, what's the big deal about an east wind? The east wind would have blown off the desert. It is hot. It is devastatingly hot. I remember when we lived in California for a couple of years, uh, every once in a while, we'd get what were called the Santa Ana winds. They're the winds that blew in from like off Death Valley, and they'd come, and those things were so hot, and they'd bring with them so much dust. It was just an absolute mess when those things were done. Swimming pools would have a foot, foot and a half of mud at the bottom because of all the dust that was being blown in. The winds that the people of Israel wanted were the winds that came from the west off the Mediterranean. Cooling breezes, breezes that would bring in rain, that would bring in moisture. Not this stuff that's going to leave the land parched. But God says, that's my wind. That's how I'm coming. I'm coming from the east and I'm going to just dry you up. Here's another picture of his judgment. Verse 16. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Want to know how bad it's going to be? Here's the picture of the battle. Here's the picture of the warfare. An ugliness so horrific. An ugliness so terrible it even makes us cringe as we read it. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces. Soldiers coming with such unmercy that they're going to take little children and just throw them into pieces. Throw them down. Just like the potter's urn dashed into pieces. Their pregnant women ripped open. Want to talk about my judgment? Here, let me picture it for you. Let me picture what happens to those who engage in a spiritual adultery. To those who kiff, kiss the calf of Baal. To those who offer their children sacrificially to the gods of this world. This is my judgment. But there is also a repeated reminder and here's where we come to this beautiful 14th chapter. So, one wonders, is there a span of time? Did Hosea leave those words hanging? Did they just hang in the air for years and years and years? When, when does he get to say chapter 14? When, when do these words get to be the expression? Do they follow immediately? We don't know. 
as we deal with it, as we handle it, they come immediately, which comes to us as a great deal of comfort. But one has to wonder how they came to the people of Israel. Is that God's word to them that just hangs in their ears that their children shall be dashed to pieces? They're pregnant women ripped open and that's where God leaves it and it hangs there as God's judgment upon them. Think what that would be like. If God now shuts his mouth, if God now were to be silent, not just for a few minutes, not just for a few seconds, but for days and weeks and months, maybe even years, this is what we live under, this coming judgment of God. The people of Israel would have to say. But you see, they don't care. They don't really regard it. They, they just think that, that Hosea's blowing hot air. They don't accept it as the word of the Lord. They could care less. They're going to just go off and do their own thing anyway. They're going to continue to kiss the bales. They're going to continue in their spiritual adultery. They could care less because they've got their plans. They've got their agenda. They're going to do what they want to do. And no matter how much word of the Lord is given to them, they're not going to listen. But oh, there is beauty in this chapter, is there not? Listen to the very first word of God. Listen to this call. Return. Even at this point. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. God is still coming forth from the prophet. Return. Come. He's still calling them to confess. Take with you your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Here, here's God saying, okay, let's see what you do. God's feeding them the words. God's feeding them the lines. God so desires that they would return to him. He gives them the words to say. He says to them, just say, just say, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Say, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no, say no more, our God, to the work of our hands, to the pale images that we make. In you... Speaking to God, in you, the orphan finds mercy. Now just say that, would you? <sighs> Amazing call of God. Perhaps you've stood across from your son or daughter. found guilty of something they just don't know what to say and you say okay let me help you here just say the following I was wrong I'm sorry 
I look to you and you alone, God, for my salvation. Such is the depth of his love that people who have so continually turned their back upon him that have not heeded his warnings or his judgment, he comes and he calls them. Confess your sin. Turn to me. Live. And then listen to verse 4. This is God speaking. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. What an amazing text. What an amazing line. God saying to these people, if you come back, if you repent, if you turn to me, I will love you freely again. Oh, the picture of Hosea finding Gomer, buying her at the auction block and taking her home. Do you realize that the only being in the world who can utter those words are, is God? No other being can say those words. I will love you freely. Because God, and God alone, is the only free being in the universe. He is the only being that is absolutely free. And his love, he is choosing to love freely. Not because of anything Israel has done, not because of they earned it, not because they deserved it, or is he forced to do it? He does it because it is his being. It is what the New Testament means when it describes for us the fact in those three short words. God is love. He doesn't have to learn to love. He is love. He doesn't have to be forced to love. He is love. His love is always freely given because he is free. He needs nothing. He falls under nobody else's command. He falls under nobody else's authority. He is absolutely free. And in his freedom, he chooses to love. See, you and I are the Israel of this story. We're the people of spiritual adultery. We're the people who have not listened to his warnings or his judgments. We're the ones who fall under a far greater condemnation than those pictures out of Hosea. We're the ones who fall under the condemnation and damnation of an eternal hell. Yet God chooses to freely love us. In the giving forth of his son. Oh magnify the Lord. My God. How great. How awesome. 
this love of God. Out of his own absolute free being. I will love them freely. According to Ephesians 1 verse 5, I can say that for every true believer, that is true. For every true believer, that is a true statement of God towards us. He loves us freely. And you'd think, well, probably said enough, right? I guess that's enough. We really don't need anything else. Just to know that God loves us freely. I can live on that. I can die in that. But God is not done. Just as God is not done when he saves us, when he ransoms us. God's not done. That's not the end. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ so that we can live for his glory. We can live under his blessings. We can live under his rule. We can live under his reign. So look what Isaiah speaks of. Verses 5 through 7. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Do you see the two pictures God gives of his blessing? His first blessing is this, I'll be the dew to you. Not the dew that dissipates, not the dew that quickly goes, but the dew that has lasting effects so that we blossom, we bear fruit. God doesn't just save us, he allows us the privilege of bearing fruit for the glory of his name. He waters us, he blesses us with his spirit, so that we might live for his glory. I will be the dew to Israel. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. Oh, to dwell under the shadow of his wings, to dwell in the shadow of his tent. The picture for Israel is this, the picture is one of protection and safety. Not only does God save me, God protects me. God guards me. God keeps me. And God gives me a visual reminder. He gave Israel this visual reminder. You know what the visual reminder is? Verse 8. I am like an evergreen cypress. That's God. I am like an evergreen cypress. I am like an evergreen fir. That's what I'm like to Israel. 
God gives to us a reminder. Every winter, I drive down the road and I see an evergreen. God says, I am, I am like an evergreen cypress. I'm like an evergreen fir. I am faithful. I am faithful. Now to me, it doesn't make much sense to cut it off, plant it in a stand, and then watch it die, which we do, right? But an evergreen, God says, that's what I'm like. Whether the season is ripe for fruit or not, I am evergreen. So that you may always bear fruit. Even in the hard and difficult times of life. I'm an evergreen. Point that out to your children. Because God pointed it out to his children. Oh, the depth of God's love for you and I. And God's people say, Father, thank you again for your word. This is hard. This is difficult. These are not easy things for the people of Israel to have heard. I'm sure many of them just wanted to put their hands over their ears and run away and scream. I don't want to listen. And yet, Lord, if we don't listen, if we don't hear, we don't hear your love, we don't hear your blessing, we don't hear your grace, we don't hear your call, we don't hear your mercy. We don't hear your compassion. And we don't hear your truth. Father, open our hearts to hear what it is you want us to hear this evening. Open our lives to the work of the Holy Spirit. Open us, Father, to your glorious truth of who we are, not because of who we are, but because of Christ. We are your people, and we bear the name of Christ in this world. Help us to live the name by which we are called. In Christ's name. God's people say, Amen.